0: Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you are spiritually prepared through. Uh, use of First John one nine, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come together today to study your word, be refreshed and encouraged as we study these important doctrines in Romans chapter 6, dealing with our spiritual life and all that was accomplished for us at the cross. Father, we continue to uh, pray that you would oversee the various affairs of this nation, that you would keep us secure, that you would continue to uh, give us the opportunities to faithfully proclaim your word, both here and abroad, that this nation would continue to stay strong as a bulwark of support for Israel, and that as we face so many different threats, both from inside the country as well as from outside the country, that you would just... Uh, prevent those who would seek to destroy this country or whose policies would destroy this country from uh, bringing their plans to fruition and you would continue to uh, just prosper this country ultimately so that the gospel can go forth. Father we pray this evening as we study your word that you would strengthen and encourage us and that as we study your word we might uh, we might be able to focus and concentrate. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Romans chapter 6. Last time we looked on this whole foundational argument that Paul has here in Romans 6 and understanding how it is that we are, as Christians, supposed to live out our Christian life. How is it that we're supposed to do this? And as many people have observed, it's certainly not original with me, the Christian life isn't difficult, it's impossible that no human being in his own strength or his own power can do what the Scripture says we are to do. The only way we can do it is if God the Holy Spirit is enabling and empowering us. And that is such a crucial principle to remember for the Christian life because there are, as we've learned uh, before, and if you haven't looked at the uh, any of the... Uh, uh, sessions from the Chafer Pastors Conference of 2011, the whole conference dealt with this, the whole issue of sanctification, that there are different, uh, the, the term that's used in academic circles is models of the spiritual life. And these are different uh, ways in which theologians, either currently or through history, have structured their view of the spiritual life. And as I've looked at these, there's about nine or ten, depending on how you break down a couple of different things. There's the Roman Catholic sacramental view, which we usually don't spend a whole lot of time talking about. Uh, There is the Greek Orthodox view, which is very similar to the uh, Roman Catholic view. There is a... Uh, Lutheran view. There is a Calvinist view, the Reformed view, uh, coming out of the revivals, the First Great Awakening and Second Great Awakening in uh, England and the United States in the uh, uh, mid-18th century through the end of the 19th century. There, There was real progress made, you might say, in this whole area of the spiritual life, really up until about 1740, 1750, little was done coming out of the Protestant Reformation. The focal point was so much on justification and the relationship of, of grace to works and that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone and were justified by faith alone. And the battles were so intense over that that there really wasn't a lot of attention paid Two other doc- other doctrines. One of the more interesting things that happened is that is is trying is for those theologians was trying to understand the relationship between justification and uh, sanctification. Let me see. Do I still have this? Yeah, I have this chart up here that's so familiar to us. Phase one, phase two, phase three. Phase one being justification, and phase two being Uh, the spiritual life or experiential sanctification. And the question is, what is the relationship between those two? Now, that may sound to you, and as well-trained and taught as everyone here is, that is, um, you pretty much understand this. But for many people in Christianity, and down through the 2,000 years of Christianity... This has not been very clear at all. And if, if sometimes when I talk about lordship, salvation, free grace, gospel, things of this nature, every now and then there's new people who come through, new people who come to church, and they're not always sure what these terms describe. Basically, lordship, salvation sees an integral and necessary connection between phase one and phase two. Now, what does that mean? What that means is that if you are truly justified, you will necessarily, because you are justified in a new creature in Christ, show certain signs of your regeneration. And those signs of your regeneration are the evidence that you're saved. Now, we've all made this kind of mistake before where we've looked at somebody and we've said, how in the world can that person be a Christian? As soon as we've done that, we have stepped away from divine viewpoint, not because we're judging them, but because we are assuming that somehow... The actions of a person's life tell us if he's a member of God's royal family or not. We all know that there are a lot of children who do not live according to their standards of their family. And that's as true for God's family as any other family. So what happened coming out of the almost 1,500 years of Roman Catholic confusion, there was this belief that if you were, if you were saved... You lived a certain way, and the only way you could know that you were saved was if you lived a cer- certain way. That was your evidence. It wasn't the promise of God in Scripture that if you believed in Jesus as your Savior, that therefore you were you were you were saved, and um, and that was all there was to it. Which would make a distinction between uh, phase one and phase two, and show that there was a demarcation between those two. In Roman Catholic theology, actually, you don't know if you're saved because salvation or justification isn't a one-shot thing. It's not something that occurs the moment you trust in Christ. You get a little more grace every time you participate in a sacrament. So there are um, these various sacraments in Roman Catholic theology. There's the mass, there's celibacy if you're a priest, there's marriage if you're not a priest. I don't know how those seem mutually exclusive, but... Um, you have all these different sacraments, and as you participate in a sacrament, you get a little more grace. It's sort of doled out to you incrementally. And when you get enough grace, then you're justified. Well, how do you know when you've got enough grace? Because it's going to be exhibited in your life. So the evidence of your salvation is, is, is your life, not what you believe, not the promise of God. Well, when we got into the Protestant Reformation, initially when Martin Luther nails his 95 theses, those 95 debating points on the door of the church in Wittenberg, which is how you, that was sort of the public bulletin board, how you announced a debate and something you wanted to discuss, uh, he didn't have a real clear focus on justification by faith at that point. He was close, he had a, uh, he was subsequently um, influenced by a young, brilliant theologian by the name of Philip Melanchthon. So Melanchthon snapped to the doctrine of justification by faith very quickly and understood that there had to be this demarcation between justification and sanctification; that there was a that these were not related in the sense that if you were justified, that had certain necessary uh, implications for sanctification. What that's basically saying is if you're saved, you're going to live some form of the Christian life. That's what their view was. And so if you weren't living any form, there was no evidence of you living the Christian life, then hmm, you must not be saved. But Melanchthon understood this, and he made it clear to Luther. And Martin Luther, had, had from about... Uh, 18, I mean, excuse me, 1517, when the Protestant Reformation began, um, it, it was about 1518 to 1519 that, that Melanchthon made it clear. And then it was about 10 or 12 years later when Calvin came along. Calvin was, was younger than Luther. And Calvin initially, when he first published his Institutes, which wasn't more than uh, uh, 50 or 60 pages at most, was a very uh, it went through like 27, twenty seven, twenty eight, twenty nine different different editions uh, as it got larger and larger and larger. When he initially wrote, he had a clear grasp on the dis- the separation of justification from sanctification, and he had an extremely clear grasp on justification by faith. But by th- th- so this is like fifteen thirties. By the late fifteen forties. The Protestants, as they were then becoming known because they were protesting the uh, theology of the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestants were uh, uh, beginning to get a lot of blowback from the Roman Catholic Church. And the blowback was that if the grace is true, then how are you going to keep everybody under control? How are you going to keep them moral? If all they have to do is believe in Jesus and they're going to go to heaven, then everybody's going to go out and live in sin and be as immoral as they can. You, you don't have any moral controls on, on people anymore. And unfortunately, Calvin didn't have an answer for that. And so what happened is Calvin began to fudge. And so what they developed was this idea that uh, you've heard mentioned before was that if you're truly saved, if you're truly regenerate, then your life is going to show it. So he backdoored works. Works weren't up in front saying that if you uh, want to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus and be good. They, they backdoored it, slipped it in, and they said, if you have real faith, then your life will show it. And so they came up with this little cliche that, that many people, many writers have used and repeated over and over again, that goes something like this, while we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. And what they mean by that is that second phrase, the faith that saves. And what they're saying there is that the faith that saves is not the same kind of faith as the faith that you, you and I exercise every day. When we get up in the morning and we're running late to work, we believe that when we get out in the car and we... Stick the key in the ignition switch and turn it on. the car's going to start. Sometimes we all have had that experience when it didn't, and we couldn't get out so so but th- that that is just a, a belief. We have all kinds of beliefs all day long, even scientists who who claim to be an atheist and agnostics who claim to be so empirical about everything that they're not going to believe anything that they can't measure, quantify, see, taste, touch, feel. Even scientists like that believe a whole host of things to be true that they've never seen, tasted, touched, felt, anything like that. And so uh, with this, in this whole issue of understanding salvation got into this issue of defining what faith is. And so in Calvinism, you had this development of the idea that there is a different kind of faith that is saving. And it's not the same as everyday faith. And so the kind of faith that is saving is a gift from God. So they began to uh, change their underst- the translation and interpretation of Ephesians 2.8.9, which says, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works." And they would understand that that when it said "...it is the gift of God," the gift of God referred back to faith." Well, when it says, it is the gift of God, the it is a neuter pronoun. But faith is a feminine noun, and basic rule of grammar is that your pronoun has to agree in case, number, and gender with its antecedent. Well, you can't have a masculine or a neuter pronoun refer to a feminine noun. So it has to refer to something else. Grace is also a feminine noun. So what is to what does the it refer? It refers contextually to the whole process of salvation as being a gift of God. It's not saying that faith is the gift of God, but that is how Calvinists will present it, and God only gives the gift of faith to those who are elect. And if you're not the elect, then God doesn't give you the gift of faith. So all of that is to emphasize why it is so important to understand this distinction between uh, phase one and phase 2 that what what I'm saying here is phase 2 does not automatically come out of phase 1 just because you have trusted in Christ as your savior doesn't mean that you are automatically going to grow that is that's that is the lordship position so they they tied those two together and what happened as we got into the 19th century, uh 18th century was that under the influence of these revivals, which were really uh, mixed in terms of their impact, First Great Awakening was more positive than negative. Second Great Awakening around 1800 to 1830 was uh, probably a lot more negative than it was, was positive. And then you had revivalism, that took over because people wanted to imitate what had happened in the second great awakening because they had their eyes on experience. So they all through this period, they're asking questions. How do we live to please God? Which can be a good question, but it can also lead you off on, on the wrong trail. And as they did that for the first time really in, in the history of theology, theologians, pastors, others started probing the the whole doctrine of the spiritual life and and what is the essence of the spiritual life and what's interesting is within the whole Calvinistic Reformed tradition through most of the Lutheran tradition and through the Wesleyan tradition that's John Wesley and the Methodists that came out of the mid uh, out of the first Great Awakening of the mid mid uh, 18th century is that in that period of time you didn't have anybody really talking about the Holy Spirit and then. In the mid 19th century, you had a, um, a, a Methodist a woman, Methodist Bible teacher by the name of Phoebe Palmer, and the anniversary of her um, uh, getting the second blessing was last week. Uh, just so you would, you know, plug that into current events or something. And uh, she was teaching uh, uh, some Bible, ladies' Bible studies in New York, and this is in the 1840s. 1850s. I forget the exact date. But what's happened then is churches have seen this dramatic decrease in attendance. And so people on the eastern seaboard are saying, what is wrong? And, and they could uh, observe it that that 10 years ago they might have had 300 people in their congregation, and now they've got 100. And so they're, they're, they do what most of us do is they get very self-absorbed and say, oh, it's all my fault. We must be doing something wrong. We're not walking with God, that God is punishing us. And and they don't ever lift their head up above their navel to look around and see what else is going on in the world. And what had happened was this guy up in Massachusetts named Horace Greeley had said, Go west, young man, go west. And they did. And so they were leaving their churches and their homes and everything else and going west. And you had this huge, massive migration taking place in the U.S. And so the churches on the eastern seaboard were losing their membership and losing attendance as everybody's moving west. But what happened with Phoebe Palmer and others, is they were saying, we must be doing something wrong. So we've got to, you know, seek a second blessing after salvation. We've missed out on something. And as soon as you hear people say, we want to figure out how to get more of the Holy Spirit or that we've somehow missed something in our spiritual life because somehow things aren't quite as enthusiastic or exciting or wonderful as they were when we were first saved... Your radar just ought to start pinging loudly that something is seriously wrong because that always leads to to a problem i mean I, I hear this with in conversations in counseling, whatever it is, and they immediately start looking to something wrong as a solution and that 's what happened in the that 's what happened in historically. And out of the 19th century revivals, you had the development of, of what was later called holiness theology, which was the idea that you get justification blessing at the cross, but then you have to bring it all to the altar. And I still, you know, all my life when I would go to a Baptist church or some other church, uh, and they would talk about bringing it to the altar, I would say, there's no altar here. An altar, I just, you know, think so literally an altar is a place where you kill an animal there's no altar up there the pulpit and the table for the communion is not an altar at all but that's that's a non-literal interpretation so you get this mentality that you have to bring it all to the altar you have the influence of charles finney's revivalistic techniques uh, coming out of the uh, second great awakening that people need to need to do something and all of this kind of merged together to develop uh, this uh, two-step theology, not the Texas two-step, but this is a theo- theological two-step, that you have one step where you get sal- justification at salvation and another step where subsequent to salvation, where when you dedicate your life to Jesus, where you lay it all on the altar, you go through some sort of post-salvation uh, the secondary experience, then, uh, then you're going to make it. That's when you get the the second blessing. That was holiness theology. When you get to the turn of the century and the development of Pentecostalism, that's when they identified that second blessing as the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was necessarily evidenced by speaking in tongues. And so you had the development of Pentecostal theology. Into that whole matrix, you had another uh, another trajectory. That went off into what became known as Keswick teaching or victorious life teaching. And victorious life teaching had elements, depending on who you're talking about in terms of these, some of the different um, uh, pastors and teachers and revivalists and speakers at that time, but uh, so some of it was similar to Keswick, some of it wasn't. This is, uh, and this was evidence because you had men from these different streams, these different models. I've mentioned, as a, just a review, we start off with Roman Catholic, which I talked a little bit about. I mentioned Eastern Orthodox, which I didn't talk about. Uh, Roman Catholic has also developed within that stream something called a mystical contemplative view of spirituality, and that's really made a huge, huge recovery. In the last 30 years, I remember going into a Baptist bookstore in the early 80s and finding books uh, uh, books by uh, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, uh, and, and a few others and wondering, what in the world are these medieval monastics doing in a Baptist bookstore? but they've made a huge uh, renaissance in the last last few years. So, so those are n- basically non-Protestant views, except a lot of that Roman Catholic mystical contemplative has come over into Protestantism now. Then you had Lutheran view, the Calvinist view, the Wesleyan view or Methodist view, and then the development of holiness out of that, and holiness Pentecostal. And then the Keswick view, and the Keswick view is really more in the line of our background because that is, um, uh, that that people in the, in the Keswick background, it was sort of a, merged with sort of a perfectionism. It was a let go, let God, which sounds good, but that was their slogan and it was pure passivity on the part of the Christian. You just didn't have to do anything. You just sort of somehow just folded your hands and went to this passive state, and God would just sort of take over and make everything happen for you, but that you had to be truly dedicated. And that was Keswick, and some of those Keswick speakers, some of the holiness speakers, also were dispensational and pre-trib, and they spoke at a lot of the huge Bible conferences that were held This is the era of Dwight Moody, for whom Moody Bible Institute is named. And Dwight Moody had a place in uh, also had a school in Northfield, uh, Massachusetts. And uh, in fact, that is that's where he's buried. But he would have these huge Bible conferences there, the Northfield Bible conferences. Then you had up near. um, uh, up near Niagara Falls, you had the Niagara Bible Conferences. There were a couple of places, churches in Manhattan that had prophecy conferences. This is what the pre-trib conference takes its heritage from, is this is what really spread the teaching about uh, dispensationalism and the pre-trib rapture were these Bible conferences. But these speakers like C.I. Schofield, and this is where Lewis Ferry Chafer came up, and uh, came under the influence of Schofield, and you had uh, oh any any number of others. James Gray was was holiness, and he was later a the uh, president of Moody Bible Institute, and uh, Talbot, for whom uh, not Charles Talbot, excuse me, uh, uh, I forget his name now. The guy who founded by Bible College Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which name is an acronym for Biola, uh, became Biola. All of these came out of that movement, so you had this kind of mixed background. Lewis Berry Chafer fit into this because he heard these men and he picked up some of the vocabulary, but he doesn't really approach it the same way. He doesn't have a victorious life, Keswick view of the spiritual life. He had a solid understanding of grace, solid understanding of the spiritual life, which he got from, from uh, C.I. Schofield. And so this came into... Uh, th- this, is our, this is our heritage, and it's built on this understanding, and it's through this period that they that as you go from generation to generation, these theologians are thinking through these issues, and that each generation becomes a little clearer and a little tighter on their understanding of what the what the scripture is saying. And those that held to some form of of human effort or works in the process are ones that are headed off on on uh, side trails. So with with uh, the, the, what it's called the Chaferian view, there's a clear distinction between justification and sanctification. It is not that they aren't related because, of course, as we indicate in the chart, at the instant of salvation we're positionally sanctified, but then it is in the process of our spiritual growth that we become experientially sanctified. The difference is that in our view of the spiritual life, Spiritual growth and fruit bearing is not necessarily connected. It's not an automatic uh, consequence of being saved. In the lordship view, it is an automatic consequence of, of being saved, which means they end up being fruit inspectors because they have to figure out if they have enough fruit. In other words, you don't, have, you don't know if you're really saved unless you have the right kind of fruit. And so it's not so much you're looking at other people's fruit, you're just trying to examine your own fruit and to know if you are really saved. And I remember, uh, hearing about Lordship, Salvation, and Free Grace some when I was in seminary in the late, in the late 70s, because this was when things were really beginning to bubble up a lot in evangelicalism. But it was not until about 1985, 1986, 87 maybe, that it really reached sort of a fever pitch. Zane Hodges at Dallas Seminary wrote a book called The Gospel Under Siege, which really opened the door, and then there was a response to that by John MacArthur. You can hear John MacArthur on KHCB here in the mornings. And uh, MacArthur uh, responded with a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And this book came out, I forget the exact year, probably 88. And there was a large Christian bookstore in Irving, Texas, where I was pastoring at the time and they invited John MacArthur to come and to uh, go to talk for an hour and present the basic ideas of the book, and they invited a bunch of pastors and have a QA. and a And Tommy Ice and I sat right down there, right dead center, right in front of, of uh, John MacArthur. I could have reached out and touched him. And he went through his whole presentation, and at the end I asked him the question. I said, so, Dr. MacArthur, How sure are you that when you die, if you were to die right now, are you going to go to heaven? That's a great gospel question, evangelistic question. He said about ninety-eight or ninety-nine percent sure. Why is why isn't it more than that? Because he doesn't know if he might apostatize in the rest of his life. He doesn't know if the fruit is really qualitative fruit of the Holy Spirit because he's putting his faith in the fruit and not in the promise of God and that's really the issue and just as a as a side note i don't know if i mentioned that in here but several years ago when we had uh, dr steve austin here speaking at the uh, chafer conference the year we focused on creation and evolution many of you remember that we're here uh, in fact we're trying to work out a deal where we can do a, get, have a have a uh, raft trip through the Grand Canyon with him next summer, uh, but he was going to Macarthur's church, and I started asking him questions at that time uh, about Lordship salvation, and he just wasn't clear, had no idea the whole debate, and he wasn't clear on the concept. His whole focus is on geology and creation evolution, all these other things, and so we had some great discussions, and there were some really good papers. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, that's the year Fred Librand. Had just published his book on this uh, uh, the, the, the the Christian cliche that if you're sa- we're saved by faith, but if but the faith that saves is uh, while the faith is while we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Fred had just written his book on that, and that came out. And uh, Steve heard that presentation, and when I called him the, uh, about three weeks ago to talk about this raft trip, one of the first things he told me because I hadn't talked to him since that conference, but the probably the first or second thing out of his mouth was, I want you to know that since we were together four years ago, I have been studying this free grace lordship thing, and free grace is wonderful. This is fabulous. This is exciting. So this is just, you ought to encourage us that, that we have an impact that goes uh, far beyond our, our, uh, our four walls. But in terms of our study of Romans 6, this is so important because what were these people all looking at? I mean, the ones that 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 I've pointed out were not quite on target on sanctification. They're all looking at their life as a criterion for whether or not they are uh, they're they're saved or they're growing Christ. It's experience based, over and over and over again, and it's based on how they feel about their relationship with God. Ultimately, when you get right down to the bottom line, it's how, how they feel about it. And when you look at what Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, this has nothing to do with how any of us feel about Jesus. In fact, what Paul talks about is if, you, if he's answering the question, how do we live the, the, this spiritual life? How as a justified person do we live a righteous life? And Paul Paul says we're going to get right down to the basics. And the basics are we have to understand some profound spiritual realities that occurred at the instant of salvation that are completely non-experiential. They're they're not fancy. They're not sexy. They don't have a lot of pizzazz. They don't have a lot of fireworks. There's no uh, special effects that are going on here that are going to get you all jazzed up. What you have to do is understand something that God says happened the instant you got saved, and you need to make that a reality in your thinking. And that's the foundational faith rest drill for the Christian life, is to recognize that that I am a completely new creature in Christ, and I am dead to sin. And my relationship to sin and my sin nature that I've always had, where that's the comfort zone, that's the power source, that's the control factor in my life, has now been totally broken. And I have to believe that is true every moment of every day. When I stop believing it's true, then I'm going to just zero right out into uh, being out of fellowship and incarnality. So we have our basic chart on sanctification that we're justified, but that's not a necessary connection to spiritual growth. Just because you're justified doesn't mean you're going to grow one little bit. You're going to be be born. You're going to be born again. You're going to be regenerate. But if there's no feeding, then you're going to die. Your spiritual life isn't going to go anywhere. You're not going to lose your salvation your justification, but you're never going to grow. And feeding comes from the Word of God. And the way so much evangelism has been conducted historically, we, we do drive-by evangelism, we give people the gospel, they pray pray the sinner's prayer, invite Jesus into their heart, or walk the aisle, whatever it is they do. But essentially, in their thinking, they are trusting Christ as their Savior, no matter how confusedly they uh, they they describe it they They trust in Jesus, but then they're never given anything, any teaching any uh, any understanding of Scripture after that and that's it. And we say, well, why don't Christians grow? Because nobody's feeding them. You have to learn something about the Word before you can grow and that's an emphasis I pointed out as we go through go through Romans six and e- even in this third verse uh, up here on the screen, Paul says, do you not know that first thing out of his mouth almost as he sets up this discussion is has to do with knowledge? We have to know something we have to learn something we have to learn what happened at salvation. We have to learn the dynamics of of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and the dynamics of what happened when we trusted in Jesus Christ as savior and that is what 's described in romans six three under this term baptism into Christ, baptism into his into his death, which I've identified as the baptism of, of the Holy Spirit. So Paul starts off in his transition, asking the rhetorical question of how uh, what shall we say, in light of all that he said in in chapters four and five, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may uh, increase? And he says, no. How shall we die to sin, live in it any longer? That's his basic point. Going back to 7th grade paragraph writing or 6th grade paragraph writing, this is your topical sentence. If you are a Christian, you're dead to sin. If you're dead to sin, you have no reason to continue to live in it. His language here is a complete and total break. Now the problem is, experientially, that's not true in our lives. And the reason is is because the sin nature isn't removed from us. It's still there, and we've got a habit pattern from the day we took our first breath of letting the, the sin nature control us. The sin nature becomes our primary security blanket. It's our comfort zone. We're all Linus, and no matter what happens, we can't give up our security blanket. Or if you uh, watched the Olympics uh, yesterday uh, with uh, uh, Danell, um, Danell, what was his last name? Levy, Leva, Leva, Leva. Cuban American uh, gymnast, f- fabulous guy. He's got this special towel, and he never goes anywhere without that towel. He takes that towel with him everywhere he goes. And it was interesting to watch him because when the other gymnasts are out there on the floor doing their thing and he's in between, he would take that towel and just pull it completely over his head so that he can close out the world and just concentrate. But that towel, I kept thinking, that's his security blanket. Well, the sin nature is our security blanket because that's what gives us our comfort zone from the time we're born until the time we're saved. And all of our habits of thought are formed under that. Uh, people today often think, well, people were abused. Every one of us was abused growing up. Some of us were abused some way. Some of us were abused another way. But unless your parents were immaculately conceived, they had sin natures and they abused you. Bottom line, we all come from dysfunctional homes. The sin nature put the diss in dysfunctional. There's no home, there's no parent that's not dysfunctional. And so we can't fall back on environment. We can't fall back on training because just because one person has a more, uh, has an abusive parent in one direction than in another direction, it's still the same thing categorically. And so uh, we all grow up responding to the issues in life out of our sin nature. And so we find uh, techniques and skills and habits from our sin nature that give us security and comfort in life. So when we get saved and all of a sudden we're told that we understand what sin is, we begin to understand the different categories of sin, and we learn that we can't operate on that basis anymore, this sets up a huge conflict in our soul because what we're told we can't do is what we feel like we must do in order to have security and comfort in a world that is against us. And the orientation of our sin nature tells us it's all about us. So we have to learn through and believe what this passage says is that you have died to sin. I have died to sin. There is a real break that took place there. Now, it's not experiential, but nevertheless, it's real. And if you've grown up since Immanuel Kant in the late 1800s, then you can't really understand what real is apart from experience because you've been brainwashed by Western culture to think that real is what you've experienced. And only by studying the word can we ever break out of that uh, that mindset. So in verse 3, Paul begins to explain that some more, as I pointed out last time. Do you not know that as many of us as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. So notice that. We're baptized into His death, and we are buried with Him. So any sort of... And as I pointed out last time, baptism has an essential meaning of identification. Identification with anything in Jesus is identification with everything in Jesus. It's not just part we're identified with the totality of who Jesus is. we are in him. So we, are, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in newness of life. Now what Paul has done in three verses from verse two to verse three to verse four is he has taken us from an extremely abstract doctrine called the baptism by, by the Holy Spirit and he's ended up in something that is extremely practical, the newness of life. How do you have a changed life? There are many of us who are rather cynical and skeptical that think that, well, people can't really change. But if you believe that, that runs 180 degrees opposite to what the Word of God promises, that there is real change. But there's only real change if you do it God's way. And real change from who we were as a fallen creature totally dependent upon the sin nature to give us security and comfort and strength, to a person who gets security, comfort, and strength from God and God alone, uh, it takes a long time. And if we're not really digging into the Word, and if we're not learning how to think biblically, which involves a lot of different, different categories, it's not it's, it's not a direct linear sort of thing where you just sort of learn these 10, 15 things and you're there. It is a process and it's, it's, it's more circular and it's a learning process because we, have to, we learn things that may not appear to have anything to do with what we're facing at the time, but they're laying a foundation in changing the way we think and approach life and so it it's, it's more practical in that in that particular sense. So we get into this whole issue of baptism, and I talked last time briefly about the fact that that it what it meant uh, in terms of its denotation. It means immersion. In terms of its connotation, it has the idea of identification. And so there are some who have called these this the identification truths of Scripture. Now I'm going to bring this up again because some of you may not care, may not know about this, but there are those who listen who do. There was a guy by the name of, 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 uh, of uh, Miles Stanford who wrote uh, some books on the Christian life called The Green Papers or The Green Letters. And he had a, a website. He passed away, went to be with the Lord in about 99 or 2000. And his, he, he was a dispensationalist and he loved Lewis Berry Chafer but he thought Lewis Berry Schaefer was a fool on the spiritual life. And, and Miles Stanford was pretty much a, he held to a Keswick view. He just didn't understand Chafer's view. And he kept saying, but, but Chafer doesn't emphasize spirit, the identification truths of Scripture. And that's not true. You, but the identification truths of Scripture in Romans 6 are not isolated from the Holy Spirit emphasis in Romans 8. They go together. And one of the reasons I brought that up is because I was at a conference in 99, and there was another doctrinal pastor there who brought a couple of men from his church there, and one of these men was sort of an expert on Miles Standish and just loved him and said, well, he just, he just loved Louis Berry Chafer and everything including spiritual life. I said, no, he didn't. And this guy had a personality, uh, he was a bulldog uh, trial lawyer. He'd been a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor for a number of years. And so he would just, as soon as I disagreed with me, you know, he was taking his, all of his debater's technique, background, and he had good knowledge, and he just decided that he was going to roll everything over me. And um, I just looked at him and I said, well, I talked to Miles five months ago, the week before he died, and this is what he told me. That Chaffer was all wrong on his view of the Holy Spirit. It's all about identification truths. The Holy Spirit will automatically kick in, and there are people who who believe this. But it's not an either or. It is a. It's both. It, you have. This is your role. My role is to understand who we are in Christ. It is our role then to depend on the Holy Spirit and make sure we're walking by him. That's where 1 John 1, 1.9 uh, comes in. But that foundation, as I put up here, goes back to the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit where we're identified with him, and that uh, connects us uh, eternally and irrevocably in Christ. But the temporal reality is that we still have a sin nature. We have to learn to be filled by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to walk in the light, But we have this terrible habit that we develop from the instant of birth to live out in the black zone. Before we were saved, there was no white zone, just the black zone, just incarnality. But after salvation, we can walk in the light as he is in the light, but we have to confess our sin. So this sets up that baptism by the Holy Spirit is an eternal reality. This is an abstract doctrine that's been misunderstood in the past, by many people. But it is foundational. This is, Paul spends virtually the first 11 verses of this chapter developing everything on this. And if you don't understand the baptism by the Holy Spirit, you can't even understand Romans 7 or Romans 8. So the question then becomes, well, what kind of baptism, because he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but once in chapter 7, but doesn't develop the Holy Spirit until Romans 8. He... he He just mentions baptism. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus? Now, how do I know that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, we'll get into that, but it's basically because that's what baptizes us into Christ. But there are two types of baptisms in the Scripture. There are a lot of people who think that baptism always involves getting wet, and that's not true, as we'll see here. There's the baptism of Jesus, which was unique. The baptism, because he didn't have to repent of sin. John the Baptist baptized him, but it wasn't a baptism for repentance because Jesus hadn't sinned, so he doesn't need to repent of anything. Then there's the baptism of John the Baptist, which was for Israel and was a call for them to give up legalism and to uh, turn back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob according to the Mosaic law so that the kingdom could come. And that was a water baptism by immersion. And then there's the baptism of believers or Christian uh, Christian baptism. Then there is a, I got that slide in the wrong place. There are five real baptisms, the baptism of Noah, the baptism of Moses, the baptism of fire, which is judgment. John the Baptist said, He who comes after me will baptize you by the spirit and fire. Fire is judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation. The baptism of the cross—that was Jesus' identification with death, uh, at the uh, uh, spiritual death at the cross—and the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So we have to answer the question: What kind of baptism is Paul talking about here in Romans six? And you see, baptism was really important in the in the early church, Christian baptism, and in in the. Um, now, it's got, there's been a lot of confusion about that since, but that doesn't negate the reality of the importance in the early church. If you think about Acts and what we studied on Tuesday night in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon. There are uh, 5,000 who are saved, and they are immediately baptized. So I showed you the pictures of the, all the mikv, uh, mikvah outside, the mikvah oat. The ritual pools or bathing pools outside the southern gates of the the Temple Mount, and that's where they would have been, would have been baptized. And then in Acts chapter uh, three, there is uh, there's more uh, baptism. And Acts chapter eight, when uh, Philip, which we just studied this, we're studying right now on Tuesday night, when Philip explained the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch trusts Jesus, and Jesus is a Messiah. Uh, Philip's question is, well, uh, what's to stop us from getting baptized right now? As soon as they found a pool of water, they were baptized. Now, a thought just hit me because of something that I saw in Israel this last time. That there was a, uh, and I showed you these pictures too. Um, One of the things that we did uh, one of the last few days when uh, uh, we stayed over beyond the group was we went down into Hebron. And along the way, we were shown the old Roman road that, that basically bisected uh, Israel from north to south, went down th- through uh, Shechem, by Jerusalem, down by Hebron, and this would have been the road, the same road. It, it was clearly marked out. They found many mile markers, Roman mile markers along the road, a very ancient road, that this would have been the same road that Abraham would have traveled from Beersheba up to Jerusalem to take Isaac to sac- for the sacrifice in Genesis 22. Now, the reason I brought that just hit me is because when you got to this one location along this road which we were taken to, they dis- had discovered an ancient mikvah there, an ancient mikvah because this was within a day's journey of Jerusalem. And if you were traveling uh, individually or in a caravan then before you went to Jerusalem you would and the temple, you would want to be ritually cleansed. Now that wasn't the same road that is the road to God, from Jerusalem to Gaza, but it would be the same principle, so that somebody coming up from the, the southwest, as they approached Jerusalem and came within a day's journey of Jerusalem, they would... I would think, just like you had on on the patriarch's path, you would have a mikvah there where they could be ritually cleansed before they went into Jerusalem that last day. And so when we ask the question, well, where did they get the water here in Acts 8 to baptize the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, maybe that's the answer, is there was a mikvah along that road where travelers going to Jerusalem would, would be baptized. So immediately... The Ethiopian eunuch was baptized after he was saved. We see the same kind of thing in Acts 10. In Acts chapter 10, this is the, well, we haven't come to this in our Acts study, but this is when Peter uh, went to Caesarea Maritima, or Caesarea by the sea, and explained the gospel to Cornelius the centurion who was the God-fearer and uh, those Gentiles in his, in his uh, home, and they trusted in Christ as Savior. We have the account in Acts 10, 44 to 47. While Peter was still speaking, while he's still uh, explaining the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Because you've got some Jews there, and all of a sudden they're seeing the Holy Spirit come upon these Gentiles as they're trusting in Christ. And uh, then we Acts 10 says, For they heard them speak with tongues. I don't want to get sidetracked on that. But look what happens. As soon as they trust in Christ, what does Peter say? Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Instantly. So there was this pattern from the very beginning that if you trusted in Christ, they didn't wait a week, two weeks, two years, five years before you got baptized. It was instantaneous. We see it in Acts 16. In the early part of Acts 16, when uh, Paul and Silas came to uh, Philippi and their... um, they met Lydia, who was a seller of purple and a worshiper of God, which means she's a God-fearer like, uh, like Cornelius. And um, she responds to the gospel in verse 14 and in verse 15 we read, and when she and her household were baptized. So immediately after their salvation, there's baptism. Uh, acts Later on in the chapter, we have the episode where uh Paul and Silas are thrown into the jail there at uh, Philippi because of their preaching of the gospel. And uh, the Philippian, the angel comes and opens the door of the jail, and the Philippian jailer sees that, thinks that they've all escaped, and he's about to kill himself, and they stopped him. And, uh, but he fears for his life, and he says, What must I do to be saved? And their answer was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You and your household, I mean, not just you, but everybody in your house needs to get saved. And so they then they went to his home. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord, that is they evangelized him and all in his house. And he took them, uh, and he, that would be Paul, took them that same hour of the night, and wa- oh, that would be the jailer rather, I misread that. Uh, the jailer took them, washed their stripes where they had been beaten and whipped, and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. Notice that, immediately. They didn't wait. Two weeks, three weeks, six weeks. In The the point I'm making is simply this, that in the early church, water baptism was viewed as something that should be done uh, immediately. Now, there are a lot of people, a lot of theologians over the years who think that what Paul is talking about in Romans 6, uh, 1, uh, 4 and 5 is water baptism. In fact, when I went to Dallas Seminary as a student, I had never heard that. When I went to Dallas Seminary as a student, and I was sitting in a uh, first-year class on uh, the spiritual life, the teacher of that class, uh, who had been a pastor here in Houston previously, uh, said that this was water baptism. But he was very Reformed in his view of, of salvation uh, at that time. And so he was just wrong there. This isn't water baptism. Uh, baptism is used in other places, like in the gospels I mentioned earlier, it's also used for death, and that's the focal point here is we're baptized into Christ's death, and it is that death separation from the sin nature that's being emphasized in Romans six. Jesus used it to refer to his death on the cross in Matthew uh, twenty and twenty-two and the parallels in Mark ten thirty-eight and Luke twelve fifty. And Jesus said to his disciples, "You do not know what you ask. These are the disciples who wanted to go with him. He said, "You do not know what what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with?" And that was his baptism of death, where the sins he's identified with the sins of the world. So there's a lot of confusion over what this baptism is in Romans six and over the meaning of baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so I'll come back and talk about this uh, next time, and we'll move a little further into Romans 6. But we have to understand that what Paul is saying here is not something experiential. It's, he's not emphasizing a feel-good uh, event, a revivalistic event, something experiential. It's You have to understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have to know what happens there because if you don't understand that, then the way you're going to try to deal with sin in your life is going to be wrong. Because we're dead to sin, but if we try to handle it through our own power, our own effort, through some sort of mysticism, through uh, some sort of uh, ritual or something else, or just just plain uh, morality, it won't work. You have to understand this abstract doctrine, and every time you're dealing with temptation, that's the issue, is go back to who we are in Christ. It is that accurately, I, accurately named doctrine identification truth. But the problem with much of the way identification truth is taught is it leaves out the Holy Spirit. But its identification truth is Romans 6. Walking by the Spirit is Romans 8. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be reminded of how difficult it's been for Christians over the years to really get a clear precise understanding of of the Christian life. We recognize that it's a life we can't live on our own. We can only live that life on the basis of your empowerment, and that is given to us through God the Holy Spirit and walking uh, by the Spirit. Father, we pray that as we continue this study that the Holy Spirit would just drive these truths home to us for without his ministry we cannot understand and apply these things so that it has real spiritual consequence. And, Father, we just pray that you would challenge each of us that we might not give up but continue to press on to spiritual maturity that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.